We are concluding our sermon series this summer through big stories of the Old Testament, these final two weeks of August in the book of Daniel. This morning we are in chapter 3 of Daniel. Before we read God's holy and errant infallible word, let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts and our affections to you and hear what you will speak through the power of your spirit. And may our affections be shaped. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to read, uh, starting in verse 1 of chapter 3 of Daniel through verse 28, uh, pretty much the entire chapter. I encourage you to follow along in your pew Bible or your personal Bible if you have it with you this morning. Hear the word of God, it is written. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down, and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, 
to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. The satraps, the precepts, prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only god, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The book of Daniel, at least the first half of the book, is one that we can perhaps increasingly relate to as Christians living in a post-Christian America. More and more, there's a sense of being a stranger in a strange land. With each passing day, we might be experiencing what it feels like to be aliens who are far from home, uh, trying to navigate a very foreign and pagan culture. Uh, certainly, America is no Babylon, at least not yet, uh, but America definitely isn't the promised land that many might have once believed it was. And so we might find our experience in America 
analogous in some ways to that of God's people who had been exiled in Babylon all those many, many years ago. The book of Daniel then is able to provide us with some encouragement about what it looks like as the apostle Peter urges the church, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We should desire to understand what faithful obedience to Jesus Christ looks like in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation and culture. We should desire to understand what spiritual fortitude and perseverance might mean for us. What trusting in God's power and submitting to his will might look like, even when it appears that he isn't in control. After all, what good is faith if it fails when things become difficult? We are at a moment in history when our faith in Jesus Christ needs to be steadfast. When faithful obedience isn't easy, but is required of us. And Daniel provides a shining example of steadfast faith and demonstrates the importance of standing firm and having confidence in God's character and promises at every point. In just the first six chapters, we find several memorable stories that teach us something of these things. One of these stories is found in this third chapter of Daniel, which details for us the courageous stand taken by Daniel's three friends whom the Babylonian captors called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were the same men who had stood with Daniel in his resolve not to defile himself on the king's food and drink earlier in the book. And now we find them without Daniel, but with every bit of resolve to maintain their faithful obedience to God in a pagan land. And we have something to learn from them today as we look at the conflict they faced, the confrontation they endured and the consequence they suffer. And through this conflict, confrontation, and consequence, we're going to see a picture of courage over compromise, even in the midst of difficult trials. So first, we have the conflict. And the conflict here centers around this massive golden image erected by the king, Nebuchadnezzar, on the plain of Dura. We are told that it was 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, so it was either a very tall, skinny, totem pole-type statue, or it had a very tall base on which stood a more proportional statue, at least if the statue took some human-like form. We aren't entirely sure which it was. We also aren't informed whether the image was of Nebuchadnezzar himself or some pagan god. Now, we could make some educated guesses about which it might have been. For instance, the fact that this was a golden image might link us back to the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in the previous chapter, which Daniel had interpreted for him. If you are familiar with the book of Daniel, then you will remember that in the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had seen a great image with a golden head. And Daniel had interpreted the golden head as Nebuchadnezzar himself and the other parts of the body, the kingdoms that would follow him. It might make some sense then for Nebuchadnezzar to erect a golden image of himself immediately following this interpretation. Uh, Humility didn't 
seem to be one of his personal characteristics. However, it wasn't all that common for a Mesopotamian king to erect a statue of himself as a god. And these ancient images were often made of precious metals because precious metals were associated with the pagan gods. And these types of images were meant to represent the gods. And this is beginning to get us what to what is really important here. You see, in a sense, none of these details about the style or what the statue actually imaged are really all that important. In other words, it didn't really matter what the thing actually looked like or if this thing was imaging one of the pagan gods of that region or a divinized Nebuchadnezzar. These things don't really matter which is why Daniel doesn't spend time describing them to us. What is actually being expressed as important is the general ideology that was being represented through this golden image. On a very basic level, this thing was meant to represent a god and was meant to be treated as if it were a god even if it were representing Nebuchadnezzar himself. And so what was demanded of everyone was a public demonstration of adoration, a public demonstration of worship. This is what the king's herald proclaims. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of these instruments, of all this music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And this is the point of the conflict because no faithful follower of the true God can obey a command like this. It is idolatry. The first two commandments that God gave his people at Sinai are these. You shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. These are the first two commandments. When God tells his people that they are to have no other gods before him, he means that they are to have no other gods, period. He is the one true and living God. Nothing and no one should receive what God alone deserves. Our worship, our praise, our adoration, our undiluted devotion. Now, I don't think any of us are confused here that the conflict is one of idolatry. All it takes is a simple reading of the text to bring us to this realization. And, and since idolatry is a topic which we have repeatedly covered this summer. It isn't a topic that we need to recover in depth this morning. Pastor John has done a wonderful job of that already in multiple sermons over the past few weeks. But the point isn't the form of the idolatry. It is what the idolatry required. So we do need to start with idolatry as the conflict because what is really interesting in this passage is not necessarily the details of the idolatry, but the way in which Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded to the demand to bow before this idol. 
And this leads us to the second aspect of this text that we need to examine this morning, the confrontation. You see, these men understood the stakes. Regardless of what the statue looked like, they knew what the statue stood for. They also knew the cost for disobedience was high. It was devotion to the idol or death. Nebuchadnezzar had demanded absolute submission to this command to worship this idol. Anything less would be insubordination, which he makes clear is punishable by death. And a horrible death at that. Death by being burned alive in a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar was actually known for this type of brutal punishment. The prophet Jeremiah notes in Jeremiah 29 that there were others, quote, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Now, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't possibly know and probably didn't really care if his subjects were truly worshiping this thing with all of their hearts or not when they bowed down before it. What he truly wanted was their participation in this act of worship. It was likely a means to bring about uniformity and submission to his rule, which is the point of listing all of these various people in verses 2 and 3. He just wanted to make uniformity normative in disobedience unthinkable in his kingdom. But because of this, we have to imagine that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have, they could have found some pretty convincing ways to rationalize going along with this act of worship. And we have to consider that the temptation for these three men was to convince themselves that obedience in this situation didn't require them to take a stand in a way that would result in them being thrown into the furnace. It would be easy to just go along and get along. So a strong case for situation ethics could be made here. This is the ethics in which right and wrong are determined by the situation. If you were, for instance, hiding Jews in your home in Nazi Germany, it wasn't really unethical to lie about it when the SS came knocking at your door. Wouldn't it have been fairly easy for these men to convince themselves that certainly God would not want them to die? After all, how could they really continue to testify to the one true God in this pagan culture if they were dead? Surely God wouldn't have brought them to this place of prominence in Babylon only to have them burned up. That doesn't make good sense, right? And God doesn't delight in the death of his people. Further, the Babylonians couldn't really be expected to understand the Jews' religious laws, nor could they be forced to provide accommodation for them. These men might have been thinking to themselves, if we don't bow down, then it will cause offense to them. And if we offend them, then they will never listen to us. And if they don't listen to us, how will we teach them of the true God? Therefore, we will bow now in order that they will listen to us later. And even as we bow, we'll do it in silent protest against the whole thing. We will kneel on the outside, but we will be standing and worshiping the true God on the inside. God's the one who knows 
our hearts. He knows who we truly worship. This sounds reasonable too, right? Or here's a good one. What about appealing to the character of God? Our God is a good God who, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, is loving and patient, kind and forgiving. Even though Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have the fullness of the revelation of God that we have in Jesus Christ, they did have plenty of example of God's faithful love toward his people despite their rebellion in sin. It isn't hard to rationalize away the egregiousness of bowing before an idol when one knows that God is more loving and forgiving than the one who is threatening severe punishment for not submitting. Just commit the sin and ask for forgiveness later. And now we're starting to get to the nitty-gritty of it, aren't we? The reality is that we aren't living in Babylon, but we are frequently faced with opportunities to bow before the idols of this world. There is no fiery furnace. No one's holding a gun to our heads, at least not usually. Yet we often still find ourselves confronted with a tempting choice to capitulate to the culture around us. And the especially difficult challenge for us in this cultural context is the subtleness of the conflicts we face. No one is demanding that anyone in the United States bow down and worship a graven image, at least not yet. It isn't that obvious. But there are demands that we repeat the lies that are being told all around us. There are demands that we repeat the lies that are being told all around us. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wanted, wasn't it? Just bow before this thing that isn't really God and act as though it is. So how about this? Boys will be boys. It's just business. You be you. Don't ever deny yourself opportunities for self-care. You deserve to live a stress-free, pleasure-filled life. Just move in with each other. See if you two are compatible sexually before you take the plunge and get married. But if it doesn't work, divorce is always an option. You don't need the church to worship God. God is everywhere. You can worship anywhere and any time. The baseball field, the golf course, the deer stand, the bass boat, the shopping mall, sitting on the beach. You can be spiritual without being religious. You should give your children every opportunity to succeed. Their education is the most important thing. Their athletics are the most important thing. Their friends are the most important thing. Their popularity is the most important thing. They are the most important thing. Sometimes these sorts of things are said outright. Sometimes they are unspoken but very present. And sometimes it is those who claim the name of Christ who are responsible for promoting these ungodly ideas that focus on the exaltation and worship of the idol of self, the idol of sex and pleasure, the idol of wealth, the idol of power, the idol of our children. 
Unfortunately, sometimes we don't even have the eyes to see what is happening. Other times we have become so good at rationalizing these conflicts away, everyone is doing it. We have to do it if we're going to get along in this culture. We, we want to be relevant. Just bow and be done with it. We've convinced ourselves that God just wants us to be happy and fulfilled. And we want our kids to be happy and fulfilled too. But now there has been so much compromise in this country that we shouldn't at all be surprised that we are increasingly seeing attempts to, as one pastor put it, enshrine high-handed rebellion into law and force everyone to participate. The powers of darkness are always eager to make conformity normative and disobedience unthinkable. This is where we're at, right? As if the pressure to simply fit into culture weren't enough, more and more we're seeing a demand to bow before the gods of this culture, less and less is tolerance being extended to those who resist. And, and we can think of the obvious examples in which this is the case. The, the redefinition of marriage to include so-called gay marriage, which comes with a demand punishable by law to not only tolerate these marriages, but to recognize them as legitimate. Our government is demanding that we repeat this lie along with the lie that girls can be boys and boys can be girls. So new laws are being passed which criminalize not calling someone by their preferred pronouns and name, which prohibit businesses from denying service based on religious conviction, which prevent parents from parenting their children, which limit free speech. And they don't need your heartfelt worship. All they need is your participation. This is the cultural context in which we now live. And just as an aside, but I think we should note this, isn't it interesting that all those who are out there claiming to be courageous social revolutionaries who are portraying themselves as valiantly protecting the oppressed and standing up for true freedom are the same ones who need safe spaces and have to ensure that every opposing opinion is silenced because they can't handle being offended? Has anyone else noticed this? It turns out that most of those demanding allegiance to idols are really insecure and fragile. And so they must, by force, compel everyone to bow and worship with them. Interesting that they are winning the cultural war. We should ponder why this is the case. Anyhow, it seems like that which conflicts with our faith in this culture is only intensifying. We are being confronted with a growing number of idols and are thus facing an ever-expanding number of choices about how to respond. But really, despite how we might rationalize them, these choices can be boiled down to just two. We can compromise ourselves by bowing down in some way or we can demonstrate commitment to that which we say we believe by standing firm and resisting. And this is why we need this story in Daniel 3. We need the example of these three men to be ever before us. 
Despite all the ways that they could have rationalized submitting to the world around them, they knew that they could not be faithful to the God of Israel, the one true God, if they were to bow their knees to that idol. And at the end of the day, they couldn't rationalize away the reality that bowing down and worshiping before this idol would be giving this created thing something that belonged to God alone, which would be accepting it into the category of deity. Doing that, as one commentator points out, will inevitably reduce the ultimacy, authority, and jurisdiction of the true God and demote him in such a way that will make him out to be no more than one of the deities of the polytheistic world. Ultimately, the dilution or diminishment of deity is a denunciation of deity. You can't elevate anything to a comparable place as God and not denounce God as God. This is one of the major problems with idolatry. This is why God forbids it. This is why these three men were steadfast in their refusal to bow before that idol, no matter the cost or consequence. So they didn't do it. And the text doesn't recount for us that they announced that they weren't going to bow and worship the idol. They, they didn't shout about the injustice of having to bow down. Apparently, they just didn't do it. They decided to practice quiet disobedience. But dearly beloved, that is quite enough. Standing firm against the tide of the culture is quite enough to put a target on your back. Standing for God when everyone else is bowing before the cultural gods will almost always rub those who have sold their souls to these idols the wrong way even when we're just trying to live a quiet and peaceable life look at what happens verse 8 therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews they went to the the king to tattle to tell him of these people who refused to worship this idol that he had made and set up. Look at them. They're hateful, bigots, dangerous to our culture. There isn't anything new under the sun, is there? The world will always have malicious accusations to hurl at God's people. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And now the real fiery trial comes. Nebuchadnezzar in his furious rage that anyone would dare to defy him called these three men before him. Justice demanded that the king not condemn them on hearsay alone. So he called them in and presented them with an opportunity to recant. How gracious of him. And now the situation really is deadly serious. Will there be compromise or commitment? Will those who say they believe in God demonstrate themselves to have a courageous faith or shrink in cowardice and unbelief? This is where it really matters. We've seen the conflict, we have seen the confrontation, but now we need to get to the most important part, the consequence. Here's the reality. How we handle the conflict and the confrontation will largely determine the consequence. There is an easy way out, just acquiesce. But know that in doing so, you have denied God as God. So there's an opportunity here for compromise or commitment, for concession or courageous faith. 
And after giving these men an opportunity to recant and threatening to throw them into the fiery furnace that they refused, Nebuchadnezzar says this to them, verse 15, and who is this God who will deliver you out of my hand? It's perhaps not surprising that he didn't believe that the God of Israel was a very powerful God. The Babylonians had, after all, defeated the kingdom of Judah and had drugged them into exile. This would have been proof to Nebuchadnezzar that Israel's God was either non-existent or lacking in power. But we can imagine God laughing as Nebuchadnezzar says this. Psalm 2 states, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. But I don't think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were laughing. Again, they knew the stakes and listen to how they respond, verses 16 through 18. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is a remarkable statement, which we might miss the force of because we know the outcome of the story. We know that they would be safely delivered from this fiery trial, but they were not aware of the outcome. Their response to the king reveals that they understood the very real possibility standing firm in the faith meant They were signing their own death warrant. And they moved here from silent opposition to Nebuchadnezzar's order to a courageous, faithful obedience to God. They didn't shrink in fear in the face of the consequence that their action was bringing. As one commentator put it so well, when they are brought in for private interrogation, they show that their quiet rebellion earlier does not hide a heart of cowardice. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not concern themselves with the consequences of faithful obedience to God. They were committed to obeying God regardless of the consequence. They make it clear that they had served him up until this point and they weren't about to stop now. God was not just some casual appendage to their lives who they could dismiss when it was convenient. No, they understood that God was central. Dearly beloved, this is what it looks like making God central to our lives. And this is what courageous faith looks like. It takes a very distinct form. And the form is this, confidence in God's power to save. Confidence in God's power to save, but also in acceptance of his sovereign will, whatever that may be. You see, these men knew God's power to save, but they didn't know God's plan. They knew God could save them, but they didn't know if God would save them. But they knew that faith required what faith required just the same. As one commentator so aptly puts it, that these men will not be involved in idolatry is a fixed point. 
That their God has power to save them is even more sure, hence the emphatic particle, but they will not be they will not presume to know whether in this instance he will intervene, hence the if. But they are prepared to stake their lives on the one whom they serve. This is a very, very important lesson for us today. We shouldn't miss how their response shows us that they didn't have some false hope that God will save every faithful person from suffering and death. God never promises that obedience to him will provide for us a life of ease which lacks any sort of difficulty. In fact, obedience to God all but guarantees that we will face challenges. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. If he was hated by the world, so too will we be hated by the world. Some have been miraculously delivered by God. Many others have not. Tradition holds that all the apostles were martyred with the exception of John. And and we could go through the centuries up until now listing the many who died, giving faithful and ultimate witness to Jesus Christ. God will work out his purposes. And he promises that all things, all things are working for the good of those who love him. Even when we don't understand how that is the case. God doesn't promise to protect us from suffering and death. But God does promise that he will complete this work he began in us. He will bring us safely home to himself. We must have supreme confidence in this. True faith will lead to this confidence, which will lead to a boldness to stand in the midst of confrontation and not compromise, but courageously declare, my God is mighty to save. But if he doesn't deliver me, I will not bow down because I know him to be good and faithful, so burn me up. Burn me up. There's another very important promise to us before we conclude. God will be with us through it all. This is what we see here, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar was enraged, ordered the furnace superheated before he had these men thrown into it. The fire so hot that it killed his own soldiers who approached to take these prisoners bound to the furnace. The text is not confused about the consequence of idolatry, even when it is just going along to get along. It leads to death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, though, well, we know the story. Nebuchadnezzar, to his astonishment, sees these men walking around in the fire, unharmed, unbound, with a fourth man who is in the appearance of the Son of God. Thus says the Lord. He who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God is faithful to his promises. Jesus Christ has suffered for us. Jesus Christ has died for us. He has risen for us. He has ascended to God's right hand where he intercedes and reigns in power for us. And Jesus Christ promises to us his presence. He promises that he will always be with us through times of great delight and joy, through times of great pain and suffering. He is present with us, upholding us, sustaining us, persevering us. 
Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship. Dearly beloved, do not compromise. Have courageous faith, have confidence that no matter what comes to us through God's sovereign providence, God is with us and he will lead us home. Place faith in him. Stand firm in him against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for your glorious promises that you are with us always to the end of the age. Lord, help us to find confidence in you, to find courageous faith in you that we can stand firm against the fiery darts. Lord, persevere us through the... Lord, may we give faithful witness to the end. And having endured, having run our race, Lord, may we see you face to face in glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number one. Dearly beloved, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort.